Welcome to Felon, True Crime Podcast. Episode 5, Penny Pratt. A warning to listeners that this episode contains descriptions of violence and coarse language. Listener discretion is advised. The shelter of barren trees offered a temporary solace in the barrage of taunting and threats. The night had quickly spiralled out of control, and it seemed now that she would sink deeper into the chasm of confusion and desperation. Their threats still echoed in her mind in a swirling chorus of animosity. She could hear their voices coming from inside the home. One made his way out the front door and drew nearer. The only help now would come from an outsider's intervention. Even in her delirious state, she knew that she needed to make a cry for help. In her shelter of shrubs, her tormentor closing in, she made a desperate phone call. The 28th of November, 2010. Penelope Louise Pratt, known as Penny, voluntarily admitted herself to a psychiatric ward located in Ringwood East, an outer suburb about 30 minutes east of the city centre of Melbourne, Australia. It had been a traumatic day for Penny, and she wasn't coping. Exactly six months prior, Penny had lost her partner to a drug overdose. She had indicated to a friend that she intended to spend the night in the hospital. At approximately 10pm that night, two men knocked on the door of her home in Baronia, a nearby suburb, to the hospital. When Penny didn't answer, they approached a neighbour and friend of Penny's and asked him of her whereabouts. They mentioned to Penny's friend that they had some money for her and that they needed to catch up. Mr Flannery, Penny's neighbour, informed the men that she was at the Maroondah Hospital and offered to phone her for them. Mr Flannery made a phone call to Penny and one of the men took the phone off him and he had a brief conversation with her mentioning that he had money to give her and would like to arrange a meeting to deliver it. When hanging up from the call, they informed Mr Flannery that they intended to see her and left his residence. The men made their way to the Maroondah Hospital and approached the receptionist there. They were sternly informed by the receptionist that they should not have been able to enter the building due to the doors being locked at 10pm every night. They were promptly asked to leave. One of the men became forceful and aggressive claiming that he needed to speak with his sister, Penny. He continued to curse at the receptionist, who was left with no choice but to call for security. Two security guards quickly attended the scene and escorted the men from the premises, all the while the man claiming to be Penny's brother requesting to visit with his so-called sister. When outside the hospital, one of the security guards asked the man for Penny's mobile number, and he called her stating, Your brother is here bringing you some clothes. Will you speak with him? Then handed the phone to the man. Based on his movements and speech, it appeared that he was under the influence of drugs or alcohol, or both. Following a brief conversation, in which the man spoke with Penny in a warm tone, using affectionate terms stating that he loved her and missed her and wanted to see her, Penny met with her psychiatrist for an assessment. Penny was soon deemed fit to leave and was discharged from the psychiatric unit. She was escorted to the car by the two men and left with them just after 11pm. Penny was driven to a unit in Dorset Road, Ferntree Gully, a suburb 15 minutes drive south of the hospital. 
At 11.21pm, shortly after their departure together from the hospital, Penny Pratt made the first of two calls to emergency services. Dialing 000, the Australian equivalent of 911, Penny made a call requesting police. In this first call, she had time to mention that one of the men escorting her was drink driving and that she wanted to go back to hospital. She mentioned that if she walks back there, referring to the residence she had been taken to, that she would cop a beating, and that all she wanted was the money that she was owed. With this last phrase, her call was suddenly cut off. The emergency call operator was unable to determine an address. At 11.28pm, Penny Pratt, hiding in nearby bushes, made the following call to triple zero. Emergency services. Call number 764942. Thank you. Hello, where do you need police? Number two, Alma Avenue, Baronia. Is that A-L-M-A? Yep. Just bear with me a moment, please. There's two people that you want okay, to Okay, just bear with me a moment. I'm trying to find the location. Could that be two Alma Avenue in Baronia? Sorry, in Ferntree Gully, Victoria? Just near yeah. Alvina Street and Austin Street? Yep, yeah, that's supposed What's the problem? That's supposed to give me money, I was owed. And I was okay, hang on, hang on, slow down. What do you need police for? They just picked me up from there in the hospital. Who's they? they? Me around. Who are we talking about? I'm, I'm within the vicinity of being heard. Do you understand what that means? Okay, well, if I can't hear you... If I can't hear you, how am I meant to help you? Trust me, you want to get to this address. Okay, and you need to tell me what we're going to the address for. Speed, wanted people. Um, Who are the people? James Potter or Mendez or whatever his name is. Sorry, what's his name, James what? Potter or Mendez. I don't know, but you're going to get me bashed. He may not... Okay, well, you need to tell me what you want me to send police there for, please. Because he's wanted. For what? Dangerous. There's warrants out for his arrest. Are you for real? For what? I'm not a police member. I don't know. Stop yelling at me. Then how do you know that there's warrants? Oh, my God. Okay, well, I'm just trying to do my job. Please, please. Okay, if you want to speak to them, you'll have to call them directly. Do you want me to send police or not? Yes. Okay, then you need to answer my question. I am hiding in a bush answering your question. Why are you hiding in a bush? Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Why are you hiding in a bush? Oh, my God. Oh, my God, what? I'm three violent offenders. What are you hiding in a bush for? Because I'm ringing the police. I'm... Three violent offended. How do you know these three violent people? <sighs> Through a friend of mine that's not really a friend. Okay, triple O lady. What now is your please? name, please? Penny Pratt. What is your name, please? I'm call taker number two. What is your contact telephone Sorry, number, please? Call what? Call taker number two. Call taker number two. What is your phone number, please? Oh four double one. One, four, two. So why are these three people violent? What have they oh done? Oh, my God. Can you stop saying, oh, my God, Penny? Business. Okay, well, it is my business if you want me to send police, but so you can either answer questions or you don't. Penny, A disturbing call to listen to, not only for the concerns raised by Penny, but also for how these concerns were met by the operator. Both parties' frustrations escalating to the point that the call was terminated without police being informed of the unfolding situation. Despite Penny's state, the sinister undercurrent of her predicament was that she faced the threat of physical violence and that she was in the vicinity of being heard.
If you managed to catch it, there was one man mentioned in the call. A 24-year-old, James John Nathan Potter. Penny mentions him for having a warrant out for his arrest and refers to him as a violent offender. A search into James Potter's past indicates that he came from a troubled background. He dabbled in the use of amphetamines from an early age and increased this use until it became a daily dependence. At the age of 22, he began using heroin intravenously, as well as using cocaine, ecstasy, and benzodiazepines. This drug use was also coupled with significant amounts of alcohol. Along with being a heavy drug user, Potter also had a history of theft and violent behavior. This was the man claiming to be Penny's brother at the hospital. It was Potter's home that Penny had been taken to. In Potter's company that evening was an Aaron Anthony Gibson. 31-year-old Aaron Gibson, a resident of the nearby suburb Wonturner, also had a history of drug use similar to that of Potter. And at the time of his encounter with Penny, he was on bail. It was Gibson who was driving the car that night. A third man who arrived at the residence saw Penny escaping. Penny was fleeing to make her phone call when 48-year-old Adrian Paul Karelikamp of Upway approached Potter's home. Karelikamp's background was similar to that of Potter and Gibson. The three were tied by their involvement in drugs, crime and violence. He joined the men inside and informed them of Penny's possible whereabouts. Based on the backgrounds of the three men, it is obvious why Penny had suddenly become worried for her well-being. Penny was in a fractured state of mind at the time. She had recently attended the psychiatric ward of Marunda Hospital because she wasn't coping with the six-month anniversary of the death of her partner. This state of mind is made apparent in the phone call that she made to emergency services as she drifted in and out of coherency. This was one of the many times that Penny had sought psychological help. From her early teens, she had experienced mental health problems and had received ongoing psychiatric assistance. From an early age, she had struggled with dyslexia and had a learning disability, which hindered her education significantly, her drug use commencing when she was at Croydon Secondary College. During this time, she dabbled with cannabis and progressed to illicit drugs, including heroin. This sent her life spiraling downward and, as mentioned, into a life of psychiatric problems. As a young adult, Penny had two children, a daughter and a son. At the time of her meeting with the three men, her daughter was six and her son was three. Unfortunately, her circumstances and mental state didn't allow her to maintain custody of the children and they were not in her care. In 2009, following the death of her father, she inherited almost $100,000, of which she spent the entirety but had nothing to show for it. Penny was not a saint. She is documented as having a history of illicit drug use and convictions for street offences. But despite these shortcomings, she was still a mother, a daughter, a sister, a niece, and an aunt. Her lifestyle at the time had been a point of concern for her family. It was a lifestyle that had led her into the company of James Potter, Aaron Gibson, and Adrian Corella Camp. It had not always been a hostile interaction with the men. In the months prior, both Potter and Gibson had been seen by Penny's neighbours and friends regularly attending Penny's unit in the suburb of Baronia. Gibson had even stayed at her unit in the week prior. However, it was now obvious that the relationship had deteriorated and Penny 
hiding behind some bushes, was rattled enough by her present interaction with them to make an emergency call pleading for police. The 1st of December, 2010, Penny Pratt's mother, Julie Pratt, reported her missing. Police quickly established that the last public sighting of her was when she was leaving Marunda Hospital in the company of two mystery men, one of which claimed to be her brother. With their regular attendance of Penny's unit, it didn't take long for police to work out who the men were. On the same day as they were informed of Penny's disappearance, police located and spoke with James Potter. He denied having seen her on the night that she left hospital. 13th of December, 2010. Aaron Gibson was questioned by police and admitted to driving to Marinda Hospital with James Potter. They now had the two men that they needed at the scene of Penny's last known sighting. In the days over the 15th and 17th of December, 2010, the Homicide Squad continued with their inquiries and as part of their investigation, they executed search warrants at four different addresses. On the 17th of December, 2010, Adrian Karelikamp, the third man in attendance the night Penny went missing, was pulled over by an unmarked police car. After some brief questioning, police commenced the search of the boot or trunk of his car. Inside, they found some damning evidence. Scattered clothes lay throughout, and upon those clothes were some telltale stains. These stains were tested, and the suspicions of the police were confirmed. It was dried blood. On the 19th of December 2010, Corella Camp was taken to St Kilda Road Police Complex. He was formally interviewed by police. During this interview, he disclosed that he knew of Penny's whereabouts. Under police escort, he directed them to Sylvan Road in the Dandenong Ranges National Park. The Dandenong Ranges are made up of a set of low-lying mountains, approximately 35 kilometres out of the city of Melbourne. If you take a drive through these ranges, you'll be greeted by picturesque rolling hills, steep valleys and dense ferny undergrowth, which is dwarfed by tall mountain ash trees. It is frequented by tourists and locals alike, who use it for scenic drives, hiking, picnics, cycling and dining in the various cafes scattered throughout the suburbs that are within and also border the national park. A suburb within this region is Olinda. Alinda is a quaint, town-like suburb known for its cafes, restaurants, craft stores and art galleries. But on this occasion, as police made their way through the suburb and headed east, Corella Camp would guide them to something that would tarnish the name of Alinda forever. In the eastern region of the area lies a road called Sylvan Road. Sylvan Road winds and turns through the eastern edge of the Dandenong Ranges through to the remote suburb of its namesake, Sylvan. It was on this particular stretch of winding road that Corella Camp led police into the foliage, where, in an open well of soil and moss, lay the body of Penny Pratt. With Corella Camp already in custody, Aaron Gibson and James Potter were swiftly brought in to join him, and the three were charged with Penny's murder. A date was set for their trial. Two men have been charged after their discovery of a woman's body in the Dandenong Ranges. The woman's believed to be Baronia, mother of two, Penelope Pratt. She disappeared from Ringwood East on November 28. Last night, homicide detectives charged 31-year-old one-turner man Aaron Anthony Gibson with one count of murder. 
He's been remanded in custody to appear in court later today. A 48-year-old man's been charged with being an accessory to murder, while a 24-year-old Ferntree Gully man is still assisting police with their inquiries. The three men were to stand trial for Penny's murder. It was soon determined that Adrian Corellicamp could provide evidence that was central to the prosecution case, and with this, he was granted immunity on the condition that he give evidence against the other two. The evidence he provided established the following timeline of Penny Pratt's horrible fate on the night of the 28th of November in the unit on Dorset Road in Ferntree Gully. Aaron Gibson located Penny a short distance away while she hid in bushes. As she hung up the phone in frustration, she could hear him closing in. An argument escalated to the point that Corella Camp ushered them in from the street because they were making so much noise. To return to the company of these men would be a deadly mistake. Affected by drugs and alcohol, all reason was lost in their interactions, leading to a verbal confrontation between the men and Penny, who was now at their mercy. According to Corella Camp, Penny and Gibson were still arguing as they entered the Dorset Road residence. There was swearing, and it escalated again to yelling, Penny pleading with the men for the money she claimed that she was owed. Gibson, frustrated with her persistent request, told her to shut the fuck up. At this point, Corella Camp was seated on one of the two couches in the lounge room. James Potter was seated on the other. Penny turned her attention to Potter and again demanded to be paid, yelling, Enough's enough. I want my money. Potter, trying to avoid the issue, dismissed it by saying, Don't worry about it. It'll be alright. But the conclusion to this evening would be far from alright. Penny again continued with her demands. Aaron Gibson, who was now in the sidelines of the argument, produced a sawn-off .22 rifle, grabbed Penny by the hair, and swung the gun to the side of her face. Penny screamed, You don't have to do this, but it fell on deaf ears. Gibson pulled the trigger, shooting Penny in the head. Penny, in shock from the blast, raised her hand to her head, and as she removed it, blood dripped from her head and her hand. This is what you get when you fuck with us, Gibson hissed, ignoring Penny's pleas to be taken to hospital. Penny tried to make her way to the front door in a last-ditch attempt to escape. As she tried to pass by, Gibson grabbed her arm, pushed her down onto a chair in the living room, put the gun to her head, and again pulled the trigger. Penny slumped in the chair, motionless. Gibson joined Potter on the couch and discussed what should be done next. Potter quickly suggested that they get her into the bathroom so she doesn't bleed everywhere. Together, Gibson and Potter took Penny by the arms and dragged her lifeless body into the bathroom. Corella Camp, in shock, remained on the couch. After a few minutes, Gibson and Potter returned to the lounge room to join Corella Camp. Sitting on the opposite couch from him, rifle still in hand, Gibson uttered the words, This is what happens when you fuck with us, Paulie. Corella Camp's middle name being Paul. Gibson then turned his sights to Potter, saying something along the lines of, You better go finish it now. Potter picked up the gun, returned to the bathroom, and it was fired for the third time that night. Potter returned to the lounge room, dropped the gun down on the couch, and sat down next to Gibson, the barrel still smoking as it lay between them. Potter, leaving Gibson seated on the couch, 
made his way towards the bathroom once again. This time, he collected a knife that had been stuck upright into a table. Minutes passed, then Corella Camp and Gibson heard Potter start to gag, and he soon reappeared in the kitchen, looking pale and sweating. He poured himself a glass of water, and after gulping it down, uttered the words, the head's nearly off. Upon hearing this grim update, Gibson sprang to his feet, collected an angle grinder from his backpack, and made his way to the bathroom. As Potter and Camp sat in the lounge room, they heard the piercing high-pitched tone of the grinder start and run for several seconds and then stop suddenly. Gibson walked out from the bathroom carrying the angle grinder, which was now jammed with matted hair and blood. The reality of the situation now sinking in, Potter told the others, Nobody's leaving. If I go to jail, everyone's going to jail. We have to get this sorted out. Potter and Gibson collected the spent cartridges, and the three continued to clean the unit before the light of the new day could reveal their crime. Potter cleaned the unit, Corella Camp wiped drops of blood from the walls, and Gibson returned to the bloody mess in the bathroom. Potter instructed Corella Camp that his car would be used to transport Penny's body. Gibson and Potter went to work wrapping Penny's body in a rug from the living room, taping her legs, and then taping the rug around her. Garbage bags were wrapped around her head. Corella Camp reversed his car into the carport, and Penny's body was wrapped in another sheet, and then loaded into the boot. The three drove deep into Sylvan Road, in the Dandenong Ranges National Park, carried her body about 40 metres into the bush, and laid it behind a large tree. Penny's body was then covered in ferns and branches, in a hurried attempt to conceal their crime. In the early hours of the 29th of November 2010, Adrian Corella Camp went to a supermarket in Belgrave, a suburb not too far from Ferntree Gully, to purchase cleaning items. He then drove to the neighbouring suburb of Tacoma and used a self-serve car wash to clean out the boot of his car. In a mistake that would soon be discovered, he used old clothes in the boot to wipe blood off the rear bumper bar. Friday, the 17th of December, 2010. Adrian Corella Camp's vehicle was pulled over by an unmarked police car. They conducted a search and found clothing containing blood stains and a plastic bag with blood on it. This, as mentioned previously, would lead police to Penny's body and bring the men involved in her murder to justice. Adrian Corella Camp ran from cameras as he was released on bail. Earlier, police telling the Melbourne Magistrates Court he'd helped dispose of Penelope Pratt's body in the Dandenong Ranges. It's alleged he witnessed the shooting on November 28th, then tried to remove any evidence of the killing from his friend's Ferntree Gully home. The court heard Ms Pratt last month went to the house where an argument broke out over money she owed to one of her alleged killers. The 27-year-old's body was found yesterday covered in shrubs and leaves at the foot of a tree by the roadside. The court heard Ms Pratt was shot twice in the face, then stabbed. Police allege the first shot Gibson fired at Ms Pratt only caused a flesh wound, so he shot her a second time. The last public sighting of the mother of two was walking from Maroondah Hospital three weeks ago. Homicide detectives appealing for information about her disappearance last week. 
Today, 31-year-old Aaron Anthony Gibson faced court charge with murder and was remanded in custody. A third man, 24-year-old James Potter, was arrested today and also charged with murder. All three men will face court again in April. Aaron Gibson pled guilty on the 24th of October 2011 to Penny's murder and was sentenced on the 24th of August 2012 to 22 years imprisonment with a fixed non-parole period of 19 years. James Potter was sentenced on the 30th of October 2012 to 24 years imprisonment with a non-parole period of 20 years. And if you were curious about the money that Penny was owed, that sparked this violence? It was $160. There has been a mixed and extremely heated debate as to how the emergency call was handled by the operator, some claiming that it is ultimately to blame for what happened to Penny. Others sympathising with the call centre worker, claiming she was dealing with a defiant and incoherent caller. Regardless of where your opinion may fall within this scope, the fact remains that a family has lost a loved one and two children will never see their mother again because of two callous monsters. All the while, a third man silently watching on while Penny begged for mercy.